listeners, you're listening to another episode of Beckett's Babies, a playwriting podcast. Every week we discuss plays we love, interview theater artists, and share our thoughts on playwriting and theater. We are your hosts, Sarah Cho. And Sam Collier. And today's guest on the show is Guadalupe Flores. Lupa has worked in communications and public relations in the nonprofit sphere for over two decades. Some of his creative achievements include The Coyote Stratagem, published in Applause Books' The Best American Short Plays 2010 to 2011, the 2012 Kennedy Center's Ken Ludwig Scholarship, and he was a finalist for the 2012 Arizona Theater Company's National Latino Playwriting Award. He holds a BA in English and Theater Arts from the University of the Incarnate Word, an MA in Playwriting from Texas State University, and an MFA in Playwriting from the University of Iowa. Lupe, welcome to Beckett's Babies. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, we're very excited to talk to you about all your accomplishments and writing. (laughs) But first, we want to hear about your earliest memory. So who were you before you ever heard of theater? So so when you say earliest memory, do you mean like as a human being or as as an artist? As a human being. Right. So, you know, the the earliest memory I have that I can point to and say, this is an actual memory of me. you know, interacting with my world was that I was a full year old. I was one year old. Uh, and my, uh, my, the brother right after me had just been born. And I remember looking down at him at his crib and just being angry because I knew my <laughs> place, my place in the family had oh. been usurped. I was no longer the baby. And, and oh. you know, my, my parents were already getting into the mode of you're the older brother you're supposed to take care of them, uh, and that I would end up taking care of all of my siblings because, you know, we were kind of latchkey kids. Both yeah. my parents were, they were both, you know, uh, uh, had their things outside of the house. It was a two-income house- household. Uh, so, you know, we'd get home from, from school, and I was typically the one who was taking care of them. But, yeah, that memory wow. sticks, sticks with me forever, you know, uh, when I always – when I do the recall, I think we all of us kind of kind of think about our lives occasionally, like laying in bed at night before falling asleep. <laughs> it always scrolls back. I know I know my memory recall is ending when it stops there. So yeah. It's so hard for a little kid to not be the baby anymore. <laughs> it is. It is. Uh, it's why I only have one kid myself, so he's always the baby. <laughs> I mean he's twenty seven now. He's a grown man. He's he's even he's even bought a house, you know, so wow. he's, he's doing adult better than me at this point. So but still my baby. So um we'd love to hear how you started your journey into theater. And you mentioned before we started recording that you chose your playwriting name very intentionally. So do you want to talk about that as well? Sure. Let me let me do that first so I don't forget it uh, uh later. But so this was I, I made the decision to go with uh, G Flores as opposed to Weather Lupe Flores or Lupe Flores for a really specific reason. I think it was in the first year of my MA. Uh, uh, at Texas State, and I remember reading an article uh, about uh, uh, about the response to playwrights uh, of specific genders. Right, that people tended to react. Um, and the article, I think, it was the New York Times, or it might have been the New York. I'm not sure which magazine, but it was. A, you know, it was one of those magazines. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was an interview with a a, a, a woman director, uh, and she said, you know, they were interviewing, and she said she realized. She had gender bias herself, even though she was a woman, that she tended to favor plays written by men 
mm. than by by women, right? And that this this does exist. It's 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 a clear, it's a clear. You know, I don't call it discrimination, calling it you know favoring men over women, but it's there. Uh, and uh, you know, I'd gone through most of my life being misgendered if somebody didn't meet me in person because my name is typically associated with women. You know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, it, it, you know, it's it's a saint's name in in. In Latinx culture, uh, many men are given the name because, you know, it's you're being named after a saint. Uh, my father also had the name and had an uncle who was named Mother Luna. Uh, oh, wow. So, you know, so there's there's kind of this, you know, it was a tradition of the family. But I knew very early on that, you know, it, it might pose a problem as far as people looking at my work in an unbiased manner. And, you know, a lot of theater companies are doing, you know, they, they, they're they asking for blind submissions. They don't see who is actually sending the play and they don't make a determination based on, on, on their own bias, right? Which I think is the right approach, but it's just kind of a safe, a, a fail safe for me to, to mm. always, you know, leave that as far as who am I in, in yeah. a very, in a very tenuous place for whoever is waiting it. Uh, having said that, some of the best compliments I've, I've gotten from, uh, you know, for for example, we were, uh, you know, we have our visiting guests uh, at Iowa, the workshop, who who would we would give, you know, submit plays for them to read, uh, and I was told more than once, I thought you were a woman because you know of what you were writing, because they do tend uh, to focus yeah. on women characters. So, so when they met me, you know, that for me that was just that was the best compliment I could receive, you know, to be told I thought you were because that me, you know, because that means I'd captured. The voices of my characters genuinely and authentically. So, so yeah. I totally just- remember trying to figure out who you were when we found <laughs> out what the next cl- incoming class was. <laughs> right, right, right. So, who is yeah. this guy? You know, and a lot of that I'm sure had to do with the fact that my my actual time as a playwright, my time in the theater, up to that point had been pretty limited, right? So, I guess this is where I'll start mm. with the story of how I became a playwright. So. I think it was, um, you know, for the most part, I, you know, for, for I'd say the good half of my life, at least up into my mid-30s, mid to late 30s, I was just a working class guy without any interest in theater at all. But the closest I got to the arts was that I had, as a young man, I had, I had hopes and dreams of becoming a, a graphic artist, which didn't pan cool. out. For, yeah, yeah, it was cool. And I have, you know, I have still have pretty solid skills, you know, in it, but I also realized, I think it was about 19, 18, 19, I realized I, I had limitations to that skill, right? That I could only go so far, far with it. So, you know, it, it was like, do I go to college and try to do something that I, I didn't really feel confident in, even though I'd been doing it for years, or find some other pathway out, right? I didn't want to stay at home. I didn't want to stay in Texas. I joined the military, uh, went overseas. And that, you know, that, that was a, a huge portion of my life for me, at least up until my mid and late thirties. You know, I was mm-hmm. married for 13 years and it was a great marriage. And then the son, uh, my son was born, our son was born uh, and things change as they often do when, mm-hmm. when a child enters the picture in a marriage. So uh, after he was born, the, the, it was a year later that the marriage ended. A- and I was kind of thrown into this uh, space, this personal space of not knowing what, you know, who I was really, mm. because I just worked, you know, and paid the bills and just, you know, watched movies and read books. You know, that's something else I think that kind of played into becoming a writer eventually is that I was, 
you know, a, a voracious readers consuming mm. books of all types, whether it's, you know, fiction or history or just constantly just downing information. Um, I, I would say there would have been a couple of brushes up to that point with theater. I, I remember reading an article, uh, it was one of the month, one of the week, the mag Newsweek or Time, about um, Einstein on the beach and just being fascinated with, you know, the, 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 the premise of what was going on with this. But I never really learned much more about it except from that article. So, so after, after getting divorced, I knew I had to do something, especially with the idea of my son growing up and being able to set an example for him, right? Being able mm. to say, this is something you should do. Go to school, go to college, get a degree, you know, do something, do something worthwhile. So that, at, at, you know, that kind of led into becoming one going back to school, going back, going to college, not back, but actually for the first time, because I never actually taken college level courses. Um, went to a community college um, and in the first, you know, I took an English class, it was one of my first classes. And uh, the English professor told me, you know, you're a really good writer. You're writing at a graduate level. Cool. And, I, and you know, I, I honestly, my response was, what does that mean? What does graduate level mean? Because I had no clue mm. about, you know, what it meant to, you know, go beyond a bachelor's. You know, I just, I was just there to try to get this bachelor's, right? And see if I could do it. So, you know, people were telling me I was doing these things, you know, at this level, and I really had no clue what that meant. Uh, but I started exploring what it meant to be a writer, tried different things. I worked for uh, the local uh, uh, alternative newspaper, the San Antonio Current, became a reporter for them while I wrote a short, my first short story that I wrote actually got published uh, in Texas Short Stories too. I got $500 for it. That was like over the moon. I said, this is great. You're going to pay me to wow. write? Awesome. Um, but, you know, I was, I was still not quite satisfied. And, you know, it, it occurred to me, take Take a theater class, take an acting one, and see you know see if you can write for actors as well, right? And for me, it wasn't so much about stage, but kind of an eye on maybe movies, right? Mo write a movie script, write something for for. But I needed, I knew I needed to to learn what do performers go through when they have to perform somebody else's words. So yeah. I took this acting class, and that was the gateway drug. It just kind of dragged me into theater completely and wholly. I, I became this. You know, I hadn't quite decided I was going to be a double major yet, uh, but, it, it, you know, it, it, I think it became pretty obvious by the time I re really settled down to become a playwright uh, mm. that, you know, that, you know, English, you know, English and theater arts together almost seems to like point you towards be a playwright. That's what that's what you're going to do. This is what you are. Um, but that, you know, that from that point to actually finishing my bachelor's degree was a good stretch of years because, you know, I was trying to work and trying to figure out, you know, is, is there something I can do with this skill set as a writer? Is there a way I can leverage that into something? And it, and it turned out that it, it was, it was something that I could leverage. I became a communications person because I knew I was good with words uh, yeah. and, and using that to, to uh, fashioning a career, uh, one that was completely unexpected, but turned out to be really fulfilling because I, I found that nonprofit organizations uh, was something I wanted to become involved with because, again, it goes back to setting that example for my son, right? If you're going mm. to do something, do something that means something, right? Make it worthwhile. Make it so that uh, uh, you're, you're contributing something to the world while still getting a paycheck. So, 
So, you know, I did that for years until I finally said, okay, I really need to get this bachelor's degree over with, right? Because I was taking a couple of classes at a time while working, and it just wasn't panning out. So I, I, I think my son was in high school by this time but I, when I decided I just need to get it done. So I mm -hmm. got, got the bachelor's degree at Incarnate Word. Um, and those last two years there showed, you know, I, we had a couple of short 10-minute play festivals, and I wrote for that. And the responses, it was the first time, it was at Incarnate Word, it was the first time I made an audience cry. And well. that's like, that's like doing heroin, right? It's the best <laughs> feeling in the world. <laughs> but then you're hooked after that. You say, I have to do it again. So you're constantly striving to emotionally move an audience. Not, you know, it doesn't have to be tears, but you want something. You want that laughter. You want that rapt attention. You want that, you know, that connection to the audience. You want to watch it, you know? Mm. You want to, you know, when they're peering intently at the, 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 the actors on stage and they're completely involved, that there's nothing that can beat that. So I think that was kind of, that's what launched me into seriously considering becoming a playwright. Um, but, you know, as I said, my son was still in high school. I wasn't quite ready to leave and go somewhere else to, you know, work on a playwriting degree. So Texas State was right down the road. It's a 45-minute drive from San Antonio. They had an MA program uh, and I applied for that, you know, with a couple of samples, a couple of scripts actually that I wrote at uh, incarnate word for, for those particular festivals and they accepted me and that those two years there really kind of showed me what I could do as a playwright. You know, oh, got cool. Yeah. You know, the, you know, the Coyote strategy got published. That was my first time I play. I wrote at Texas state. Uh, I wrote hurricane season, which got, you know, which was the runner up for, uh, uh the Arizona theater company's awards. Um, so it was it was a it was a wonderful experience. Great faculty, you know. Uh, the Kennedy Center folks were also very supportive and just really wonderful. Mm. Um, and about halfway through my MA program, so after the first year, uh, I remember this. I was I was having, I, ha I was having a, a a meeting with my advisor Jim Price, uh, great guy, uh, and. He said to me, "You know, you should you should consider getting an MFA after hmm. you finish here, right?" And I, I honestly said, I asked this because I was completely arrogant. I said, "What's an MFA?" Because I had no, <laughs> I had well, no. Well, yeah, idea. and you're like, I just I'm almost done just, with this other degree. Yeah, with an M and like, an A. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So like another master's. What's this? So you know, he he explained it to me, but then I did my own research and I said, "Oh, okay, that's what an MFA is." Uh, you know, the terminal degree, you know, in playwright. You don't have to get a PhD if you don't want to. And I'm like, cool, I like that idea. So when I finished uh, my MA there at Texas State, um, I, I, I applied to I applied to two places, uh, Iowa and Yale. I said, that's really all I care about. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't want to think about a, you know, a MFA anywhere else. Because if I'm going to leave, if I'm going to go somewhere else, right? And I, by this time, I'm, you know, I am... I'm in I'm in my mature years, if you will, if I put it that way, right? But my <laughs> son was about to head off to college himself. You know, I was I had this career as a communications person already, right? I was working at that time for the Hispanic Association of Colleges and Universities. Uh, you know, so I was you know I was kind of established, right? So if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to root myself once again and and kind of dive into this new experience, it's got to be worth it. So I applied the first time didn't get in, right? Um, which was, you know, that's that's valid, you know, because the play I said, su I submitted Hurricane Season, but it wasn't quite, 
I think, good enough for either Iowa or Yale. Uh, so I wrote, after that first rejection, I wrote a new play, mm-hmm. uh, A Ritual of Flesh and Blood. Uh, probably, it's, you know, there is, it, it, it's all an all-woman cast. Uh, there's like five characters. Um, and and it's, it's pretty intense. It, it opens with an act of necrophilia and ends with an act of cannibalism, right? It's like, okay, if I'm going to do this, let's push the envelope. Let's really push it as far as, as what can I talk about? Uh, and I got into Iowa. They sent me a letter. That's amazing. Like, yeah, yeah. So, you no, know, this Can is I just a- ask you, um, what, it's so impressive to me that you tried again. I think so many yeah, people yeah. would just be like, okay, I didn't get in. I guess I'll go do something sure. else. Sure. What was the kind of driving force that made you think, oh, I'm going to write a new play and I'm going to try again? Right. I, I think it was part, you know, honestly, part of it was I just loved the experience of being in a theater program at a university. Mm-hmm. Where you have, we have these connections, all the, you know, just really amazing people with remarkable talent who are just as passionate about it as you are, right? And those tears, I don't think were quite enough, right? I I, I had really just gotten my appetite wet with, mm-hmm. you know, that experience and I needed more. There was that too. There was, you know, there is, you know, let's be honest, there is kind of a perception that MAs are not as good as MFAs, right? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I thought, you know, I, you know, it, 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 it's an incorrect uh, perception, but at that time I thought, you know, I'm I'm good enough for an MFA. I can do this, and, and I think, you know, it's clearly it's hubris, you know, that compels me to do that in a way. But you know, the, you know, uh, it, it's I, I think you know I think I think playwrights as a rule, we're all a little hubristic. I mean, you know, yeah. we're writing we're writing words. So we're, we're even more than most writers, right? Most writers, you know, are like, Oh, I'm going to write this and hopefully it'll get published and people read it. We're not just, we hope it gets published. It's like, you know, we're going to write this and we're going to make people stand up and do things with it. You know, and that's really, that's really, that's we're going to make an audience of- sit there for two right. hours and they're not right. allowed to leave till it's over. Right. That is like the height of arrogance that we think we can do that, you know, which is, which is hilarious. When you think of most playwrights, we're all, tormented with self-doubt anyway right mm-hmm. but we still think we can do this right so so you know there was definitely a amount of hubris when i said you know i'm just gonna apply to yale and iowa and that's it you know and, and if i don't get in i don't get it that's it uh so so you know those those two kind of things kind of played into it. and you know honestly uh my you know as you know as mature as i am you know at my age i still i can honestly say i i have met some of my favorite people in theater uh, oh, working, yeah. you know, in, in, in both the MA and the MFA, you know, uh, I have, you know, some of the best people, you know, I, I you know, in, on the planet that I know, yeah. you know, I met in theater. I will also say that some of the worst people I've met, I've also <laughs> met in the theater, you know, just really <laughs> terrible people. I'm like, oh my, I don't want to spend any time with you. You know, so it's, it is, yeah. I, but I think, you know, I think the arts tends to attract, you know, kind of extreme personalities, you know, you're either yeah, big so true. And, and, you know, people, people love you or hate you, or you're, you know, just very quiet and reserved and people hate you or love you. You know, that's just kind of how it is. I think it, it is the nature of, of what we do. So, so yeah. So the second application I put in to, I was accepted and I said, okay, 
I guess I'm going, right? Um, no idea about Iowa. The closest I'd gone was when I was 19 in the military, and I was stationed in North Dakota, Minot, North Dakota. Uh, and, you know, when I was 19, so, like, the cold, that, this is fun. Snow, this is great. Um, now, in Iowa, I was like, oh, oh, this is cold. What is this? You know, <laughs> first, time, first time it snowed, I looked out the window and I thought, we're all going to die. That's it. They're going to find my body under the snow in the spring. <laughs> I'm going to die in this. And I didn't, of course, but you know, it was, it was very much an abrupt shift in not just environment, but also culture, right? Um, you know, it's, we all know how homogenous the population is there. Uh, so, you know, oftentimes I felt like the only Latino in a, a, a one mile radius, and I probably was more than once. Right. But, but it, it, it was, you know, it was, Pretty, it was a pretty amazing experience uh, being there, uh, yeah. despite a lot of the, a lot of the difficulties, you know, that that I that I that we've all experienced with Iowa, you know, whether it's you know the school or whether it's the population or whether it's the environment. So, um, yeah, I mean, are, I wonder for people who haven't gone through this process, um, if you, I wonder if you could just talk a, a little bit about the difference between an MA and an MFA and. Mm. Uh, I mean, I know you went to two very particular programs, but yeah, um, yeah. What, what, what did you get out of the? Yeah, what what was the difference, and what did you get out of it? I, you know, I think the difference. You know, I'm I'm not even sure the differences can be ascribed to one being an MA or an MFA. The biggest difference I think anyone can point to is that is MFAs are usually three years, and MA is two mm -hmm. years, right? And with masters, you know, an MA you're expected to to get a PhD once you've gotten that master's, right? That oh, is the right. Threat, right. So there's that. There's also the fact that, you know, the Texas State program is now an MFA. I, I think I was the last, one of the last oh, MAs to graduate from that, right? So, so I, I, you know, I like to think I had a little, you know, a, a little bit of an effect in kind of supercharging that from happening, right? Because I was going to the Kennedy Center and getting these this recognition and, and you know, kind of, kind of creating an effect that was noticeable. So, you know, I think that they were, they were in the planning stages anyway, but, you know, I think my, my advisor could point to me and say, this is the kind of, you know, this is the kind of, of things we can do if we get an MFA program. So, so they were, they were already, I think, in the process of kind of structuring it like an MFA program is just one year less. Um, you know, that's where I got to first work with dramaturgs. It's very much like an mm. island, you know, at dramaturgs. I fell in love with the idea of dramaturgs at, you know, at that, at that program. It's like, I want a dramaturg for every play I do, which, you know, didn't happen, but, you know, it was, it was that thing that I wanted and I have nothing but uh, absolute respect and affection for, for what they do. Um, there was, we got to work with, you know, graduate directors, which also creates you know, uh, uh, a sense of uh, of professionalism. You know, we get somebody who's yeah. just as dedicated and just as focused on having a good work on stage. Uh, actually, worked the director I worked with most at, at Texas State was we both got our undergraduates at the same time from Incarnate Word. Oh, uh, La yeah, Laura Garza. She's very she's very good. She's a great director. She's she's in San Antonio right now. She's teaching, uh, but they, she has a theater company there as well. That that. They do work. They, they do work. So it's, you know, it's, it's all those things. I think they're very similar to what I experienced at Iowa. It's just a shorter time. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there, there was, it's a, you know, it is honestly a bigger school. 
uh, much bigger. Uh, they have a BFA program for their for their young actors. Uh, so their actors were really good, uh, and there were a lot of them. Uh, and many of them were, were uh, students, they were people of color. So I had access to a cast there that I really didn't have in Iowa, you know, considering yeah. what the undergraduate population looked like. So, so it was, you know, I'm glad I, I'm absolutely glad I did it. It was the best experience uh, ever. And in a way, I think I was very fortunate to do the MA as opposed to the MFA program, because that would have been it if I'd been the, the MFA program there. This way, mm-hmm. with the MA, I was able to go and do something else, an MFA yeah. somewhere else. So it, it really worked out. And, you know, my experience at Texas State, it showed me, yes, you are a player, actually, and you can do this, and, and you can you can do good things with it. So, so yeah. Um, awesome. Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, and I think MA programs are going to be different no matter where you are, as well as MFA programs. So yeah. uh, trying to say... I, I'm I'm absolutely certain there are MA programs out there that are much better than some of the MFA programs, just because of the staff that you get with the opportunities you mm. get. So, so you know, uh, if there's anybody out there who's thinking about going for either one, choose the program that appeals to you, not not the letters of the degree. I would say. Totally. I have a controversial question to ask. <laughs> Excellent. Do it. Um. Well, while you're just talking about how. Um, you wrote a play. It was all female characters, and then, right. and then, and then, some reaction was like, "Oh, I thought it was written by a woman." Right. And I'm so curious because I've just been thinking about this a lot lately. Um, is have you gotten a reaction where people were like, "Oh, you can't write women characters. You're not a woman," or like, yeah. you're, "You know, you're not gay. You can't write gay characters." Right. You know, right. like, right. So right. I'm so curious if you got any kind of reaction like that, or if you do get that kind of reaction like what would your response be right uh you know that is that's a question that i think about all the time actually you know it's it's Mm. when i write these things it's always at the forefront of my process and i never i never not take it seriously i i've never i have not gotten that reaction yet uh which is which is one it's both good but two i think it tends to you know i have to constantly put myself in check don't get cocky right uh, always think about your characters as real people uh, uh, because, you know, real people are going to be reading it and they're going to be performing it, right? So there, there is, there has not been that reaction as of yet. And I, I, I'm happy about that. Um, mm. I, I, you know, and actually, you know, I, there was the, 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 my thesis play for, uh, uh, for Iowa um, was it's a play called the Pirate Queen, and you know it, mm. it's this, this fascination I had with women and violence. Right? How how do you depict women? You know, can you depict women as being uh, agents of the violence rather than being the victims of the violence? That's always been a huge thing. For I me. love that as a dramatic yeah, question. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's it has been. I, I have not written a play where a woman has been victimized. That has not happened, and I don't intend to ever do it. Uh, and if she is a victim, she's always going to inflict violence back because of it, mm-hmm. right? That is, that is essential to it because um, I, think, I think that's, you know, if you're a man and you're writing women characters, it's something you have to be aware of, always have to be aware of, right? That you're mm-hmm. not making the woman the accessory, that they are the central focus of the story. Um, and the Pirate Queen is that, as is Binary Star, as, uh, as many other plays that I've written. You know, I, I became... 
you know, I, I, I will be honest and admit it became at the first kind of this, it was a challenge. Can I do it? Can I write authentic, genuine women characters, right? It was kind of a cocky kind of, uh, you know, I'm going to do this. Mm. I'm going to pull it off. Much like with two-handers, right? It's the same thing. Can I write a two-hander? I'm going to do it. And I'm going to do it with women, right? Um, so so it's, it is, it's, it's always a concern and always a, a question. Am I allowed to tell this story? I think every playwright needs to do that. Even if, even if you're writing about people who are very much like you, right? You still have to ask those questions. Are there something about this character that I need to be sensitive about. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that I think applies very directly to uh, the play that you, that you want to talk about, Binary Star, because one of the characters is, ha, you know, uh, has autism, right? Um, yeah. And, and that play, you know, Binary Star, I have to constantly look it over to make sure that I am being sensitive to, to how we talk about characters like that and how we talk about the things they go through, right? Because, mm. I mean, you know, there is this push among that community, among the neurodivergent community, to have agency, to take control of, you know, how, how culture and society looks at them and regards them. And that's important. And that I have to pay attention to. If I want binary start to be done again, I always look it over very closely to make sure I'm, I'm staying abreast of how we talk about these folks, right? Same mm-hmm. thing applies to people of color. Same thing applies to uh, uh, gender, right? Mm-hmm. Am, I, am I being sensitive to uh, about what I'm talking about? So, mm-hmm. so, and you know, I will say with Pirate Queen too, um, uh, somebody, asked, you know, somebody came up to me, I thought you were a bitchy gay man. I said, thank you. <laughs> So much. I said that because that's what I was going for, you know. Because, because you know, it was it was that it's it's a it's a comedy with a lot of with a lot of serious things about it and it has, you know, action. Uh, but it was also, I think, very much into examining what what were women going through in the nineteen forties, right? To mm. be to be women, to be independent, to to be creators. Uh, so so yeah, it was it's it's always you know, if, if I keep getting those compliments, I know I'm doing it right. If I get somebody saying, you don't, you can't talk about this, then I know I've done something wrong. And mm. I will take I will take that complaint seriously if and when it happens, right? That I will not, you know, you can't react offensively. You have to take those things seriously. If somebody right. brings it up. Yeah. So, and I always will. So, yeah. Well, this seems like a good time to talk about Binary Star, which is such a beautiful play. Thank um, you. Thank I think you. I saw a reading of it at Iowa. Yes, and yes, it was yes, it was the it was for the festival actually. It was for the festival. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um and yeah, I'm wondering if you can just talk about um the origin of it and um how it has kind of grown over the past sure. few years. Sure. Um so you know, if I were to go as far back as possible as far as the origin. So you know, we we all have people who were neurodivergent in our lives, whether they're friends or family, they're there. Um, you know, I, I grew up in a time where perhaps people were less accepting of those kinds of differences than they are now. Uh, mm-hmm. I was fortunate to grow up in a family and have family friends who were very supportive and very open about including our, our neurodivergent uh, family members and friends in our lives, right? It was, they were not 
hidden. They were not pushed aside. They were they were an essential part of the family. So so there's that you know that understanding that they they are they're here. They're in our lives, uh, and you know it is up to us to make sure that they feel welcome and safe. So that's like kind of a core of my of how I view these these characters and this one specific character. But I, I think there's the you know the 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 the, the closest inspiration for it is so so i apologize for talking about my love life but this is going to involve my love life are you kidding we want to hear about it (laughs) so i was i was dating uh this woman a brilliant woman she's she uh she's a few years older than me uh she started off as an archaeologist got bored with that decided to get her medical degree became a (laughs) surgeon and after that, said, so, you know what? Let me get. She said, "I'm going to get my law degree too." So she's a lawyer oh as gosh. well, right? So, so it's like she's a superhuman, <laughs> right? She's amazing. But, but I noticed at least, you know, it, it could have been a, a good month into the relationship. I started noticing things, right? That she was, she was legitimately uh, obsessive, compulsive, right? Before we left the house, whether hers or mine, she had to. She checked the burners and the lights and all the appliances two, three times before we could get out the door, right? Mm-hmm. And when I brought it up, I said, you know, you know, I, I've noticed, you know, these things that you do. And she said, if, if you're going to be, you know, she, she was very serious about this. She said, to be a good surgeon, you have to be obsessive compulsive. You have to check mm-hmm. and double check everything that you do because someone's life is at stake, right? So I think, I think not that it made her that way, but I think she fell into it because she was that way, right? Because mm-hmm. she was, she was a perfectionist in every sense of the word, whether it's, whether her own personal look, she was gorgeous, right? She, she dressed fabulously with, with jewelry, you know, that was probably worth more than, you know, uh, m- all the money I've made in my life. Uh, <laughs> she just, she, and, and, you know, she just, she, she was, she, she is, she is an amazing person. Uh, but that kind of, you know that, that 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 kind of behavior, coupled with this kind of brilliance, really intrigued me. You know, I, I, it started it started my head. You know, what what if we we, you know, what if I came up with a character who was like this, but pushed even further? What would mm-hmm. that be like? You know, so so we had started dating after I'd finished my master's at Texas State, and before I applied uh, to Iowa. So. It was my subconscious working on the story. I wasn't really thinking about it, you know, in my head, in my conscious forefront. I wasn't writing anything. I wasn't taking any notes. It was just this character growing in my head. Uh, and I, I named the character in the play after uh, my friend, Sarah Rink, right? She is this brilliant oh, mm-hmm. archaeologist, surgeon, and lawyer. That's who it is. And I've done this a, a couple of times with, with characters that I have named after people in my life, just kind of like, you know, you're special. You're all, you're awesome. I'm going to name this character after you, uh, and so that's, you know, that's that's who this character is named after. Uh, Sarah Rink in the play is much more extreme than Sarah Rink in real life, but there, you know, the inspiration is there. So there's that 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 kind of that root, the roots of that particular character, uh, and as my subconscious is working, and I've always been kind of. I've always been interested in stellar bodies. I mean, it, 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 it it's probably explains my youthful love of science fiction, right? Traveling among the stars, seeing these, these you know, space and galaxies 
and uh, uh, filaments of galaxies and just this the abyss that lies beyond it. It's been a huge interest to, to me. Uh, and, and it kind of struck me, if, if you're going to be someone who can actually put all these things about what the universe is in your head, you have to be special. You have to be something mm -hmm. unique. So that, that kind of pushed me towards making Sarah an astrophysicist, right? So, mm -hmm. so then bring in this kind of obsession with creating a two-hander that would work. I tried one before. It didn't quite work. This was at Texas State. Texas State. Uh, and the two characters are male. They were brothers. So, you know, I think I was working out the whole being a man with brothers and what that kind of relationship was. Uh, yeah. so, so when I started thinking about Binary Star, I knew I wanted to make it two women, right? I wanted to take, I wanted to take men out of the equation altogether. Uh, it, I didn't quite accomplish that because uh, the other character's father plays a big role in this. Right. Uh, uh, at least for her as a person. Uh, but yeah, the two-hander, uh, this kind of interest in people who are exceptionally gifted and, and may, may have challenges associated with that drove me to this, this particular play. And so, so when I got to Iowa, um, I knew I was going to have to, you know, we, our, our first workshop meeting where we talked, well, okay, we're going we're gonna to figure out who goes first, you know, and who's the first one to present their, 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 uh, their first work to the workshop. Uh, and I, th I think, was it Ryan who went first? Did Ryan just say, I'm going to do it first? I can't remember. I think I might have been second. Yeah, <laughs> right. But I was, I was pretty early in the roster, right? So I knew, and I wanted to, I, I did it to, to deliberately pressure myself to write the play, right? I worked better with deadlines. So if the deadline had been ahead, you know, late in the semester, I knew it was going to work for me. I needed it now so I could get the play mm -hmm. done. Uh, so, so I, I wrote Binary Story in about two weeks. It was a two-week process, right? I just kind of, and I started Jeez, writing. I knew how that's I, amazing. I, thank you. Thank you. It, was, it, it kind of freaked me out when it happened, but, you know, it did happen. I, it's actually very similar to what happened with Coyote Stratagem. I think I wrote Coyote Stratagem in the span of four hours. It was one oh night. I had, I had to take my class and, like, sit down and write it. This doesn't always happen with my plays, right? Binary Star and Coyote Stratagem are very special cases as far as my creative process goes but it happened so with binary star wrote it in two weeks got it down took it in to the workshop and you know the response was just kind of it kind of blew me away how everybody responded i think people were just kind of immediately taken with it and with the characters mm -hmm. i remember i remember lucas and eric especially they were kind of mm. like this is something else right i was not expecting this so so you know, I, we, I, I, I set it aside because, you know, I wanted to think about other plays, didn't touch it, H you know, had it read during the festival. And again, you know, the reaction was, was exceptional. I, I had one of the undergrads actually come up and ask for a copy because her brother had autism uh, hmm. and she was interested. You know, it, it really struck her. You know, it, it moved her because of that. So I sent her, you know, a copy of the script, uh, and, and the response was just. I think the response at the at the workshop uh, afterwards was also great. Um, so, yeah, I, I kind of. So I set it aside again because I, you know, I was working on the place. It was the first draft, hadn't touched it, uh, and I think, you know, I, I submitted to a couple of things and it got attention, uh, and 
it is, you'll appreciate the story because you, I think you, did you, did you interview or talk about Sherry Kramer recently? Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. We yeah. did an episode about a few of her plays. Yep. Right. So, you know, Sherry's, Sherry's a hoot, right? She is the legitimate <laughs> hoot. You know, that word applies to her specifically. So she, she came to visit in my third year. Uh, and, you know, she, she wanted us to, you know, everybody give her a play to read. She just gives binary. the most amazing feedback. She too. does. She does. Oh, wait until you hear what she said about mine. Uh, <laughs> I, I sent her binary star, right? The, so we, we get into the classroom where she's going to talk to everybody. It's, you know, the workshop is there and, and she's going to talk about the plays. And we all sit down. The first thing she says is, okay, which one of you wrote binary star? And I said, <laughs> So, you know, I, I think I actually raised my hand like like a kid. I'm like, it's me, ma'am. I wrote it, right? Because I had no idea what she was going to say. I thought, this is it. This is, you know, this is my comeuppance. This is where I get my, my ass handed to me. And she says, this is the perfect play. Aww, and wow. everybody's jaw dropped, right? I mean, you could hear the room went dead quiet. And everybody's jaw dropped. And there are at least two, three beats. And she goes, and you know, I probably should not have said that out loud. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Art, yeah, yeah, I remember Art saying, I'm paraphrasing here. Um, I said, yeah, I don't think the playwright should have heard that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because, because it, you know, it honestly created a psychological block. From that right. point it, forward. It par- that can be paralyzing. Right. Mm. I couldn't touch it. I could not go near it. Right. Oh, it just kind of, ah, you know, it just, it, uh, you know, I, I remember I was, I was just kind of like, I, I heard things that were happening, but my brain wasn't actually functioning during that time. Right. It was like, mm, Sherry yeah. Kramer just said, I wrote the perfect freaking play. Right. What do I do now? Uh, one of the, one of the things I do remember uh, her, her saying about it is that she, she said she saw something in this play she had not seen before that one of the character that Sarah, the character, Sarah, actually changed right in the play mm-hmm. I, I think the point she was making is that most people when they write plays you're writing characters who are responding to events in the play according to who they are as characters as people right uh and my character did that but she also changed she mm-hmm. became different at the end of the play which i don't you know i think is a valid point on on sherry's part that you don't see you don't see that a lot. You don't see characters kind of becoming something right. else. And this is what happened to, to, to Sarah and the play. So that was significant. That's so interesting, Lupe, because I remember, were, no, I don't think you were there when Sarah Gubbins came. Were you there when Sarah Gubbins came? Uh, no, she, I don't think so. She came and did a workshop with us. And the whole yeah. premise of, the, okay, yeah. And the whole premise of the workshop was her, she started with the question, do you right. believe that people can change? Uh-huh. And then we kind of grappled with that question and she was like, this is going to determine what kind of playwright you are because some some playwright, like there's two kinds of playwrights. There's playwrights who believe people can change and playwrights who believe that people can't change. And depending on what, what view you have, you're going to write different plays, which I thought was so interesting. And that makes absolute sense. Yeah. 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 It does make sense. Yeah. I mean, I think you could probably be someone who's somewhere in the middle. I think so. I I think so. um, Yes. People cannot change. Think... Are you kidding me? I think there are a lot of people who can change. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think 
you know, I, I, as a as a writer, I I think I have actually I have probably created plays of characters that are that have done both. That characters who don't change mm. by the end of the play, uh, but there are plenty that do. Um, you know, when I write, you know, I, I was asked once, how would you describe your how would you describe your work? What kind of plays do you write? And I and I I, I came up with the idea that I write plays about ordinary people doing extraordinary things in extraordinary circumstances. It's kind of a catch-all, and it I doesn't always that. apply. But, you know, it's what I shoot for. Uh, I think with Binary Star, it's not quite that. I think one person is very extraordinary. One person is very ordinary. Uh, I think they're both doing extraordinary things for them, right, for their mm -hmm. situation and their case. And it is, you know, it's not something that you would see normally in a family relationship, which made this, this particular relationship unique. But so this is this is why I confess all that the play itself is still a first draft. I have not touched it since I wrote wow. it. What you read and, and what you've seen in, in you know as performed, that's the play. Um, I love that. Yeah. And, and yeah, you know, as as I have sent it to different places, uh, like especially with uh, Atypico with uh, Teatro Chelsea's production, and I got feedback too, and I talked to people about that. Um, I think I've come to accept the fact that this is the play, right? That it's not going to change. And one of the one of the feedback I got with uh, Atypico was that we think this is the play. We don't think you can do anything, or you should. Well, and not so do many anything. times we overdevelop, or yeah. yes. you know, yes. over. Like I think about br making bread. There's a there's a way in which you can overwork the dough, yes. and then it yes. doesn't rise in the yes. oven and i think that yes. can happen with a play too yes absolutely so so yeah there there is i i have come to accept the fact that this is the play right this it's not going to become anything else than what it is now um which mm -hmm. was absolutely freeing when i came to that realization you know the, it, it kind of it takes the onus off of me as the playwright to do anything more with it. That, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, and that it, perhaps it's not going to be, you know, the play that you know uh, breaks me out, which which I'm not all concerned at all concerned about at all. I mean, when when we talk about overdeveloping a play, I think there's, I, that development hell does not appeal to me at all. Right, mm. that taking it to workshops, and taking it to conferences and trying to see can I do something with this? Can I get people to pay attention to it? I, you know, when we when we talk about what changes the pandemic has brought? What changes did the lockdown do? It took that out of me. It took that kind of desire to to send it, you know, to be this playwright who's doing the workshops and doing all this. I, I don't care about that anymore because family and friends became much more important. Those became those people became the focus of my life. Yeah. So that playwriting and theater is now secondary, right? Which which a huge relief. Right, that you know, I don't care if you know if there's a deadline. So what? Okay, whatever. You know, if I I might send something in, I don't know. Um, and that the plays that I'm working on now, no, I don't, I no longer suffer anxiety from not working on them. Right, that I'm happy to let my subconscious play with them while I do other things. Right, which has always been the process, but I always felt slightly guilty about it. That guilt is no longer there. That I, I don't feel that pressure of trying to send it off to places, of trying to get people to see it. it it matters less now. It's it is legitimately about practicing my art, regardless of what anybody else thinks about it or, mm -hmm. or whether they even want yeah. to see it, because it's fulfilling on its own, and that I have other things that fulfill me as well. 
So, that so makes yeah. So much sense. Yeah. So, so the, uh, it's, you know, I, I've sent it out. I've sent it out to a couple of more things, binary star, you know, if people like it and a, a lot of people seem to, that's great. And if they don't like it, that's great too. You know, it, that's fine. You know, mm -hmm. there are, you know, not everybody's going to like it and that's totally understandable. Um, I think if I were to talk about any of the weaknesses in the play that do exist, I think that those weaknesses, if anybody sees a weakness, it's a weakness they perceive, right? It's not actually a weakness in the text itself, but it's something that they respond to or something that's not in that, that they're responding to. Hmm. I, I, would, I would say that there's, I would explain it this way, that I think, I think the arts in general, not just theater, but the arts in general suffer almost from this kind of postmodern hangover. Right. <laughs> that, that, you know, we look at something and if people aren't broken, that if this, you know, if there isn't tragedy, if there isn't death, if there isn't pain in the story, it's not quite good enough. You know, that it's not oh, yeah, literature that stands up to, you know, to the test of what we need, that, you know, ordinary people doing ordinary things in ordinary times is not good enough, right? There has to be this drama. There has to be this tragedy. There has to be this, this, you know, this fall, you know, from heights to, to be worthy of being called drama. I think, and I'm guilty of that myself, right? The play I wrote to get into Iowa has all those elements, right? <laughs> it has that serious, dramatic literature because people, you know, die and there's pain and there's horror, you know, and there's this, these terrible things. Um, and not every play, not every story is going to be that. Not every story that is worth watching or reading or experience has to be that, you know. And it's somehow we're going to have to get past that, all mm -hmm. of us, you know, that that need to show pain and horror in the human experience. But that's not always the things we want to see, or that we need to see, especially after we've gone through two years of a pandemic, right? And a presidential administration that visited horrors upon our world. Hmm. So yeah, that's my soapbox, soapbox speech. <laughs> um, that was a lot. To just made yeah, me sorry. think a lot. No, I'm just yeah. Like, sorry. No, no, I love it. It was um, yeah. Um, I could probably say more, say more on this, but um, <laughs> I want to ask one more question before we sure. move on to glistens. Um, right. Actually, this is a fun question. Okay, so <laughs> name three playwrights, living or dead, that you would uh, invite to a dinner party. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, on the top, it's just you know, on the top of the list, always for me is Tom Spot, Tom Stoppard, right? Oh, um, so fun. Yeah, yeah. Because you know, being at a dinner with him would be awesome, right? I mean, can you imagine having a few drinks with Tom Stoppard? And he's telling you, yeah, the first time we produced Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, this happened. It's like, yes, tell me all these things, please. You, add, you know, <laughs> just, 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 you know, just who he is as a playwright. But you know, there's also he, he's, you know, he is, you know, you, you talk about, you know, I think sometimes genius is bandied about a little too easily when we're talking about artists. I think Tom Starbert is a legitimate genius, right? Uh, and he is, but he, the, what he writes at the genius level is also accessible to everyone, right? Mm -hmm. You may not get everything in, a, in his place, but you will enjoy the heck out of it. You will enjoy 
the stories that you see. Um, mm -hmm. Even the ones that are like, I mean, um, I think in Ar Arcadia, for example, which is really complex and complicated, but it's still a joy to watch, even if you don't get everything. Um, yeah. So that, so Stopper, definitely. Um, the second one would be, uh, you know, this is an interesting one because I started out not liking her work and then just grew to love it. It's Susan Laurie Parks. Mm. Um, the reason I, you know, when I first encountered her, it was when I was still performing. I was doing a, I was, I was going to be doing a play, the play uh, In the Blood um, in oh, San yeah. Antonio. I know that play. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So when I first read it as a, you know, when I first read it as a performer and as, a, as an emerging budding playwright, I thought, you know, my reaction was, what the hell is this? Right? Because it was so, so weird. But what I realized, once I got on stage with the script, with the other actors, and we started performing it, I realized that it works on stage so well. Yeah. That I had this kind of literary lens when I read the script and saw this, what it, you know, this jumble of stuff. But when you actually get on stage and bring it to life, it becomes something absolutely different. That you know, just it 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 sucked me in, and I just became a huge fan of her work, and 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 I still struggle with it, you know, because that literary lens is really hard to get away from. But I now have a greater, deeper appreciation for what she can do, and she just seems really cool and weird too, as a person, <laughs> you know. Totally. Yeah, having, totally. Yeah, having dinner with with her to be great, and I, you know, for the third one, uh, I, I, it's a shout out to who you're named after, uh, Samuel Beckett. Uh, <laughs> And I, you know, honestly, the, the reason I would want to have dinner with him is that after, after being in a lockdown for so long, you know, with the pandemic, I could honestly say to him, bro, I get it now. I get it. <laughs> you know, you know, cause I'd always thought, oh, where did he get the ideas to write these? You know, being locked in a French farmhouse during World War II, you know, uh, evading, you know, the Nazis, mm -hmm. that's, you know, not being able to go leave this building. That's that's what it that's what it's like. I get the mindset that would create Endgame mm. or waiting for Godot. You know, a, a, yeah. a deeper appreciation for the trauma that causes. You know, and this kind of exorcism that you can yeah. perform on this trauma with creating works like that. So, so Beckett. Down. He's a very popular guest. I feel like he's been invited to <laughs> the most. <laughs> dinner parties of any playwright <laughs> yeah I, I think i think there's you know there's probably a mixture of both adoration and fear mm. you know connect with that because he would be really intimidating to sit down with uh and have dinner dinner with but it, it's not surprising you know he, he is I, you know I, people always point to brecht as the biggest influence in theater i think beckett is is has much greater reach than Brecht. Um, I love that. And I'm, not, and, I, and I'm not saying that just because I I am annoyed with Bertolt. I am absolutely annoyed <laughs> with Bertolt. I have problems with him. But yeah, Beckett. Beckett, I think, is, is I think we all are children of Beckett if we're writers, you know. Or babies of Beckett. Babies. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, those are my three. That's great. Well, Lupe, it's been so great to talk to you. So it's been fun. This you um, said it would be fun, and it is fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You were like, "Is it fun? It sounds yeah. fun, but is it fun?" Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, I'm glad. 
So at the end of every episode, we like to do glistens, which is where we share something from the week. It can be music, a headline, um, a show you saw, really anything. Right. You guys want to go first or shall I go first? Yeah, I'll go first. Um, I started reading, finally, this book called The Overstory, um, which... I believe won the Pulitzer Prize a couple of years ago. Yeah. And um, it is kind of about, it's like one of those sweeping epic novels. Um, but yeah. it yeah. Ha- the twist that it has is that it follows the lives of trees. Um, oh. So it's it has kind of this um, different time scale that it's operating on. It's not operating okay. on human time scale, but it's operating right. on tree time scale. Oh, I'm wrong. Right. It won the National Book Award, so I'm correcting okay. myself in the moment. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's such like, a beautiful, beautiful book. Yeah, they, they kind of remind me, for some reason, I, you know, brings uh, Tolkien's Ents to mind, you know. Okay. Uh, the movie yeah. Walking Tree. So yeah, that's interesting. That's, I'm, yeah. I'll look that up, definitely. It's really good. Yeah. How about okay. you? My my listen is season four of Stranger Things. It came out. Mm. Um, <laughs> I caught I caught up and right. it was really good. Um, I'm, I'm on episode three right now. Oh, you are okay. Okay, yeah. yeah it's supposed to be. It's like two parts, right? Like they or they released the first half of yes. four. I don't know why they're doing that. I don't know why. Just trying to get the subscribers to stay on and pay more. Yes, because Netflix has work? lost a lot of subscribers. <sighs> I guess. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I just finished uh, the, like the part one of season four, and it was sure. really good. Oh my gosh! Um, and then so in that show, their character. I, so maybe you're on episode three, but Sandy, um, she's like has a fair song. Are you there yet or no? No, no. Oh okay. Well, she has a fair song and has it's an '80s song, and it's uh-huh. blown up where. People are like listening to the song again because oh, of the show. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Yeah, Kate Bush, right? Kate Bush, yeah, running up the hill. Yes. And yeah, so yeah, like, yeah. And so it's like back on the billboard. Like, can you imagine being a song <laughs> when you were not popular for like thirty years coming right. back on the billboard? Like, I think that's right. so crazy. Right? Yeah. There, when a there show does be, that. Yeah. It used to be. It used to be kind of like a a coolness indicator for me if if somebody knew about Kate Bush before the show. It's like, okay, you're cool. I know you're cool. <laughs> Right, uh, kind of like yeah. So yeah, that was that. You know, another thing about that. So when I was in the military, I was stationed overseas, like several years in the eighties. Right. Uh-huh. So whenever I watch a show like Stranger Things, mm-hmm. there are parts of it that don't, you know, they don't resonate with me at all because I wasn't here when those oh, things happened. Right. So I have this kind of weird kind of disconnect because everything for me is connected to the UK in the eighties. Mm-hmm. Right. That's where I was at. So it's very very British kind of perspective on what the 80s are so yeah it's always kind of an odd experience with that so i guess it's my turn so mike listen is i just uh, i just came in the mail a couple of days ago uh it is an album it's it is uh the title is last and first men it's by the composer johan johansen icelandic Mm. uh, and he he wrote it as the he was he's a composer that's what he does but he also produced uh, and directed a film of the same name, Last and First Men, which is based on a science fiction novel from the 1930s by another Icelandic uh, uh, artist, Olaf something, right? So 
Johan Johansson, he like passed away. His film came out and received all these awards, Less Than First Men. It's narrated by Tilda Swinton, which you can imagine how awesome it's going to be because of that. But it won all these awards, and he, I don't think he lived to see what it did. But I ordered the album because I heard the music, and the music is just amazing. I ordered vinyl, the vinyl album. Uh, it's, it's on the Deutsche Gramophone label, which means it's probably going to be really good quality recording. But it, it's, that, it's, you know, it's that really haunting kind of beautiful music that is both lamenting the past and, and has hope for the future. So Ooh, that sounds I'm so really good. Look, yeah, I'm really looking forward to just kind of listening to it and you know, having some whiskey while I'm listening and just, you know, feeling good. Now, when you and, say it's coming in the mail... Is it no, I already, I already got it in the mail. It's, it's sitting right okay, there on my shelf. Okay, but in what <laughs> format is this music? It is, it is a vinyl record. It's an LP. Wow, so you can, you can so get funny. it on anything. Yeah, you can get it on anything. I mean, it's out there in streaming. I'm sure you can listen to it on Spotify, that kind of thing. But, you know, they're, they're, when I hear certain kinds of music, I know it's the kind of music I want to hear on vinyl records. I right? love because that. Because there is, there is a difference in quality. You will hear it. Uh, uh, if you listen closely enough. So yeah, I, I ordered the records and I'm looking forward to, you know, cracking open the cellophane and, and putting it on the turntable and listening to it. Cool. Well, Lupe, this is it. We're at the end of our show. Thank you so <laughs> much for coming on. Sarah, it was a blast. I had, Thank I had you so time. much. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and I'll be sure to pimp it out to my social media. Or oh, yes. Hey, where can our listeners find you? Right. So the, probably the, the best ways to find me on Twitter, uh, uh, com, which is also my playwriting email where people can send emails asking, can we do your play? Here's some money. So there's that <laughs> as well. Uh, but my current, my current name on, on Twitter, uh, this stems from the Trump era, is the bad ombre your parents warned you about. So yeah, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. You can find me on there, friend me, add me, uh, insult me, whatever you want to do. Excellent. Right. Sounds good. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> you can insult Lupe. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, I, I love I love making fun of myself. It's awesome. It's, it's a blast. So, yeah. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Beckett's Babies. If you enjoyed what you heard or learned a thing or two about playwriting, be sure to like, subscribe, and share the podcast with your friends. And if you'd like to reach out and share with us your thoughts on playwriting and theater or maybe be a guest on the show, be sure to visit our website at www.beckettsbabies.com. That's www.beckettsbabies.com, and you can contact us there. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.